This is the Talk Theater Interview Podcast for January 24th. I'm your host this week, Ann Nicholson-Weber. And today we're going to be talking about Noel Coward and specifically two productions currently running in Chicago of his work. One is uh, the cabaret review, would you call it, Jim? Yes. Of uh, Called O Coward, which is playing at Writer's Theater, and Jim Corti, who directed that, is here with me. And then also Private Lives just opened at Chicago Shakes, directed by Gary Griffin, and Gary is here. Uh, welcome to you both. Thank you. Maybe we could start by having each of you very quickly describe uh, the two shows, just a sentence or two, so we know a little bit about what we're talking about. Well, three or four sentences. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Jim, maybe you could start with O Coward. O Coward is a uh, review written in the early 70s by Roderick Cook, who worked with Coward himself, a very fine stage and film actor in his own right. Um, and he had compiled a collection, uh, a selection of scenes and songs from Coward's work and uh, shaped it and formed it into a, a two-act review that was very successful that Coward actually got to see. And uh, we've honed it for the tiny black box that is the, the bookstore up at Writers and uh, had quite an experience with it. Great. And Gary, Private Lives. It, it's a play about you should saying you should really never ever be with your type because that will drive you crazy. And it's about <laughs> it's a play about insanity, I think, and love in, in the in the but in the most loving and wonderful way because Coward uh, wrote this play f- to star in himself and with uh, uh, Gertrude Lawrence, the great stage actress Gertrude Lawrence, who he uh, who he had a great friendship with and really wanted to create a vehicle for them. And then the original production also started starred Lawrence Olivier, who was a young unknown kind of at the time, and his first wife. So it uh, it's a play about uh, a couple trying to have a new marriage, a calmer marriage. Uh, but what is really in their soul is that other person that will always be there and drive you crazy. And so uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's inarguably his best play. And uh, and had influenced so many other plays. Uh, Albie talks about it, how it influenced Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Stoppard's The Real Thing borrows shamelessly from it. So uh, mm. it's a thrillingly um, great play to get to work on. So obviously there are two quite different aspects of Coward's output, um, his, mostly songs and then a straight-up play. Are there things, um, I know, Gary, that you've actually also directed O Coward. You mentioned that before. Um, A long, long time. (laughs) (laughs) So are there things that they have obviously in common? Is there a way you can characterize what is the essence of Coward, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely there are. Uh, Well, you know, he defines what Englishness is and um, these plays all have that essential thing about them. Uh, His sophistication, his wit, but um, what I tried to do with the review was kind of typify a Cowardian, if there's such a word, relationship. Mm. Uh, these three actors and uh, in the course of the evening through these songs, uh, I hope to kind of typify a kind of relationship, love among the artists type of thing. And I think that's what is the kind of riveting thing about attending it in such close quarters that you feel privy to this um, very sexy relationship. Among the three of them. V- among the three of them. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. very sophisticated, lots of wit. And then there's a lot of exploration of loving and losing. 
that perhaps is more deeply felt than Coward ever expressed it as a performer himself. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, he would just fling these these things away. He wasn't into sentiment at all. And then at times he was very sentimental. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think what we wanted to do was to show what was beneath the surface, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that also kind of enriched the proceedings as we went along as well. Well, you said something that I was thinking about before the interview. And Gary, I want to ask you a, a similar question. But, but Jim, you said um, things that were under the surface. And... I would think that doing coward with this typically English um, kind of reserve isn't the right word, but you don't make things explicit. Nothing is too out there, let's say. Um, For his own audiences, a very, that kind of subtle innuendo would have been very familiar. For modern audiences, that's not our current aesthetic at all. I mean, we tend to just be you know, the more out there, the better. Kind right, of. right. So I wonder if there are ways that you have to bridge the aesthetic of, you know, 1920s, 30s, 40s England and that, um, as I said, that subtlety mm-hmm. to a, a modern audience. Well, there was an aesthetic that existed then, a way to behave that doesn't exist today. These were comedy of manners because there were manners. Yeah. We don't have comedy of manners anymore. Right. <laughs> you know, because um, we don't have the codes right. to break, kind of, or to play around. Right. There was uh, definitely a, a veneer, mm-hmm. uh, uh, almost a protection uh, uh, people had, people wore in their relationships. Uh, but it would crack. Mm-hmm. And you'd get to see underneath the surface. And I think that's what great artists explore. What is beneath the surface? Mm. Well, I think a lot of that would apply in private lives. Yeah, and I think something clearly that Jim was able to do at at Writers and what we were interested in was the intimacy. I think Mm -hmm. Howard, in its original time, was presented and was was performed so presentationally. This play, Mm -hmm. Private Lives, was done with... Uh, a proscenium set and it was it actually had a, Brian Bedford said to me this summer he said you're doing private lives in that space really <sighs> and it was a great yeah, but I was glad because uh-huh. it, it is the challenge is you're used to this kind of version that says here it is and it's this two dimensional world the box around right. it right mm-hmm. and so you're looking at it against the backdrop the characters as opposed to examining it mm-hmm. from all sides mm-hmm. which was the aesthetic we were interested in how does the play, as as an experiment in 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 in, in, in believing in all of our faith and belief in how richly felt this text is, that w- that it could be examined three sixty and hold up. You know and, that may be an answer to my initial question about bridging to a, a twenty ten audience because. To me, as you talk about it, it seems like the proscenium at a distance with a, you know, kind of square around it is uh, an embodiment or a version of that Englishness we were talking Mm -hmm. about where there's that distance and everything is very contained and controlled and taking the same text and putting it in the round as you've done um, maybe is a version of a more modern sensibility that we're more in the thick of things. We're more... um, more likely to break down mm-hmm. a distance between us and intimate things. Well, we, we, that you know was what I mean? the intention. It was also why the stage turns. It wasn't all just to be cute, but it was there to it was there to take artifice out of behavior, mm-hmm. so that you know, in a proscenium or in a thrust, even 
there's a moment when you go, okay, 30 seconds, we have to shift because these people are blocked. Mm-hmm. And so... So I think we know. probably need to give the listener a little bit of a background, <laughs> yeah. which is that Gary has staged it on a very, very, very slowly revolving um, Lazy Susan, essentially. Yeah. Um, it doesn't revolve until the two lead characters see each other again. The first two uh, scenes are staged with it in... with it. And then we, we was part of the idea was that that's what starts the rotation of the universe of the play. And then, but it was about it was to take the challenge of the space and make it work for us. Mm-hmm. And to think, well, why does it have to only be proscenium? Does it? I mean, and maybe right. there will be people who feel it does. I right. mean, I, I'm interested in that response. But it was fun to challenge the play and think, mm-hmm. well, if it's going to live, maybe it can be this. Well, and Bedford's response, I think, I don't know, might have been Coward. Certainly Coward would have been picturing it in a proscenium. But I think there was a time when Coward was very out of favor. He was considered passe and there was – because I think there had been a time when Coward-esque became a kind of performance style. Mm -hmm. And what's been nice is to be part of the time when that's passed and that it can be reexamined. and. And, and how we can own it as Americans. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that what we really tried to do was, was with all due respect to our, to our British colleagues, is to say this is our American Chicago, Chicago Shakespeare on Navy Pier private lives present tense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For our audience. Yeah. Well, I'll say that for me in both productions, what was striking, sometimes Coward feels very brittle to me. And neither of these productions had that quality. And in fact, instead, there's the scene, and I'm not going to be able to quote it at all, but I think that in Private Lives, Amanda talks about being knowing. And that was exactly the right word when I was trying to characterize what O. Coward felt like. What And what to me is kind of quintessentially Coward, as I've discovered him in these two productions, which is this sense that every... Happiness is infused with awareness that it's going to be lost, that there's this sadness underneath mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and to me, that's very different from the kind of forced gaiety, you know, that that is a picture I had of the bright young things of that world that he inhabited and of his aesthetic. To almost there's a tenderness in it that yeah, really surprises I, me. I, I can't remember the quote who, who, who said this, but there was a, a reference to Coward about um, how he may lose his heart, but he doesn't lose his head. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll he'll suffer it, he'll feel the loss, but he will prevail. Nothing seems to bottom out uh-huh. tragically. Uh-huh. You know, we'll pick up, we'll be all right. But it, this really hurts right now. Yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, you know. What can you, Gary, give me that quote more or oh, less? Well, it's it's fascinating because that was that's one of my favorite parts where Amanda was talking. To, she's and she's trying to educate Victor about who she is, and she says, "I was never a poor child. Um, I had my heart broken, but it wasn't an innocent girlish heart. It was jagged with sophistication. I've always mm. been sophisticated, far too knowing, mm. uh-huh. and sophistication is as knowledge." That um, and let's live with our eyes open, right? You know, in thinking about England in between the wars, too, there was a great deal of wish to have certainty and have oh, well, this is how it's going to be, and look what happened. And he right. was, I think, really about we play orchestra play the song in your show, you know, which is mm-hmm. about which is about there's going to be stuff happen. Stuff is going, to, you know, we have to preserve the party 
mm-hmm. because the party is being alive. So, and again, where that goes feels different from my own picture of that time going into the experience of talk, seeing these plays and talking to you about them is that is it desperate or is it not desperate? It's uh, well, it's a, it's resolute. It's determined. Mm-hmm. I think he personally recognized his gifts and that he was just going to keep producing, keep writing, keep mm-hmm. himself working. Mm-hmm. Um, he he wrote to keep himself working. Actually, mm-hmm. he cast himself in everything he wrote practically. Right. Right. Um, this idea of just never giving up. I don't think it comes out of a desperation as such. Uh, uh, a disillusionment, not a dis- just a, a talk about a joy at loving uh, what you're doing, uh, you know, uh, and loving the people around him. Um, so much of what he wrote was about people he knew, Gertie and the Lunts and. Uh, Olivier, um, Lorette Taylor, Lorette Taylor. Yeah, I I had a I did Hay Fever several years ago, which is a lovely play. But um, one of the things that it was a play written by a young Noel Coward, and a play that he, he had spent time with Lorette Taylor and her family, and it was written from an observed place. I thought, mm-hmm. you know, it's a great play, but it doesn't have where in private lives the difference. And one, one of the reasons I was so excited to do it was because this he's lived this uh-huh. on in whatever form of relationship. Right. The internal motor of it is so profound. This is that, not outside looking. Yeah, in. this is not, yeah. and he's not commenting on anyone. So it, it, for me. It, it was also in our process, I think, when, and I mean this in the very best way, when the play became beyond coward is when I felt most excited about it because it felt like he had launched it into something that was beyond this experience being I'm watching coward, but I am watching behavior mm. that happens to be informed by his language and his universe. But I always believe, you know, I listen to the audience a lot in previews and, you know, the substantive conversation is what you're waiting for is not the one where they're talking about, oh, the clothes are beautiful mm-hmm. or the, oh, the stage <laughs> is turning or the things. But hopefully toward the end, they are talking about what you do to me, what my husband does, uh-huh. what my, what, what we experienced early. My two friends talking about the moment when Amanda says, so soon after dinner. And uh, to have sex, yeah, is what it's yeah, talking and about, they're yeah. going, Oh, we've had that conversation. <laughs> I went, Oh my god, this is way too intimate. I don't need to know, <laughs> right? But um, people recognize it, their but, relationships, but you yeah. realize he he it's rooted in recognizably human pain and mm-hmm. struggle, and mm-hmm. and he just had an incredible voice. So, I think he would be pleased that. He, you could walk in and it's presented in this way now in this theater with an American cast and they're having the time of their mm-hmm. life. Right. There. It works in that yeah. transposition. Uh, well, so Jim, Oak Howard doesn't have that really. I mean, it doesn't have, we don't follow a specific scene. There isn't a lot of dialogue, actually very, very little. It, it was almost all music in my memory of it. <clears throat> Um, is any of what Gary's talking about present, do you think, in O'Coward, or is it just a completely different aspect? Very much so. Uh, it's a pretty tricky thing to articulate. But what has happened in O'Coward is that the songs turn out to be actual storytelling elements, not in a linear narrative way, but in a character-driven way. Uh we're discovering who these people are and their relationship to each other and about the author's voice in this play, um, moving them around. Um, 
And it, it's just fascinating how by the end of the piece, you feel like you've almost seen a play. Mm-hmm. But now that's it's actually Roderick Cook's play, right? Well, it there really isn't a play to O Coward. Uh, there were a lot more scenes. Uh, there was uh, actual scenes with costume bits, and uh, which I made a decision to forego uh. because I suspected something could happen with the words and music if we didn't do the sketches. Uh. And. Um, and indeed, that's what happened. I had this really ridiculously high concept, very exotic idea of these three beings coming in out of nowhere into this room and captivating an audience with the words and music of Noel Coward. And there almost being a sadness about how they got lost here and what are they doing here and how they're going to get out of here, mm-hmm. you know, and get mm-hmm. back to wherever it is they came from. That's interesting. You know. Just to stay for a minute more with Oak Howard, one of the things that I found most beautiful and moving about it had to do with the movement. You're a choreographer as well as a director as well as an actor. Um, And certainly there's not dancing per se, but the way that you move the bodies uh, around the very small space and arrange almost stage pictures. Well, they are stage pictures, of course. Um somehow is very evocative and you probably won't know how or why you do that but how do you do that well there is there is something about uh, the composition of figures in the space the human figure in space and how you group them how you space them um, can have a psychological effect on you an emotional effect on you as you just look at it right Um, and it's a what happened with O'Coward was a almost like looking at a gem and looking at its different facets and turning it and looking at this facet and this facet. Um, uh, the, the movement became very organic as we moved in this little box, this little floor pattern. And the floor almost started becoming into a grid with psychological spaces in it and moving them through it and in and out of it and two against one or three solos or all three together. All these different combinations became very telling in an unspoken way. Right. I mean, it's, of course, any director works with that language. I mean, Gary, when you're blocking private lives, you're doing the same thing. The difference, I suppose, is that because O'Coward is very abstract, there's no demands of the narrative, essentially. You could put people anywhere. Um, So it becomes more dance-like. And you would never think that Coward would be illuminated by choreography. I mean, maybe that's silly of me, but it was striking that that was such an important part of that show. Well, As opposed you. to the lyrics and the and the music, which are the obvious things that make Coward Coward. Well, maybe that's an a, um, obvious segue would be to ask Gary about blocking private lives in the round, which, I mean, you create obviously much more difficulty for yourself <laughs> doing it that way because everything's going to be looked at. Helps. Well, right, right. But it still has to um, affect everything that you do. Well, yes. It, it was, it was fascinating though to be in the, because in the rehearsal room we weren't turning and we weren't, you know, so it, it was, it was a real room mm-hmm. and we tried to stay true to um What's the true behavior mm-hmm. in this in this space, and mm-hmm. what are the, and then everything that we did in transforming, moving that to the it, theater, uh-huh. and, 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 and 
had to do with preserving that mm-hmm. because um, there's a thing about theater that that I'm always interested in. Well, two things: the, the audience's participation, the audience's sense that they that it has been that this event is is is, is specifically created for their, them to participate in, mm-hmm. not for them to be witness to, right. but to right. and the part of us that likes to peer in and sense that we're being we're given by this relationship an opportunity to to be in the world where we would never be mm-hmm. and that was always what 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 informed us on the scenes when we talked about what the content of the scenes had a lot to do with the behavior that would never occur were there a third person in the room uh-huh. and there is never a third person in the room until the third act and so hmm. Except the, the entire sudden, audience. Exactly. <laughs> right. 600 people. But, but, but it, 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 one of the things I think that makes the third act what it is and why in sort of classic comedy terms it works because all of a sudden you're adding more people to the room. Mm-hmm. And so by the end, it takes, it takes the entire evening to get all four people on stage for any length of time. Right. Because – and only in that situation can it get sorted out. And so that – Part of the experience was was what we tried to create without any worry about you know, audience, how it right. plays in the space. And then we we and I think I, I, wish, I know the actors were at first wow this is disorienting, and yet then because originally we were actually going to use the revolve a little less, and by the end of the first week they're like can we turn more because actually this is great, <laughs> and because they suddenly realized how it was how it was actually in an odd way, taking away self-consciousness from them. Sure. Because why? Because they didn't have to worry about where they were. You can sit at that table and talk for 10 minutes because you know that Something the room else is, is going to shift. There's no front. Sh- exactly. Okay. So exactly. this is interesting. I <laughs> suddenly realized it's like a movie Yeah. Mm-hmm. in that you're moving the camera, not right. the actors, right. right? It's like that great stuff. You know, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm such a fan of Scorsese and I'm only jealous of him occasionally when I'm working <laughs> because I'm thinking, oh, Scorsese could just move the camera around this whole thing, right. you know? So you found a way to kind of and do it that. it was, as I said, I can only do it once and I'm glad we did it with this, but it, uh-huh. it, it was, it was it was great fun to take something completely away from its normal dynamic and to see what would happen if yeah. you did that. Let's talk a little bit about comedy because in general, comedy doesn't weather as well as drama and tragedy because generally it requires reference to current mores and mm-hmm. current codes Um so first of all, do you think that people are laughing at the same things now that they would have in Coward's time? No. <laughs> because most of the audience don't know who Tiller Girls are. There are a or, lot of references um, that – right. But what I – what was great for us to – because we have a play with a lot of classically famous lines in it that – and it took a couple of previews to, to, to learn that just let go. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You don't have to land those. So what? Because we were finding pockets of response that if if a if a if a joke becomes too famous, it's no longer and and then it was great because then then those moments actually got deeper emotionally because Mm -hmm. that they were freed. Can you give an example Um, of one that's very flat Norfolk? Yeah, and yet 
that moment and and I because I love Tracy so she's such a great actress because she never tried but it, she also understood I said because it's very painful when someone has brought up someone they love when that part of you that needs to say something negative to survive uh-huh. that moment because, because in that situation so Elliot is talking about, about his new about, wife about and Amanda Sybil, is, right. is expressing and, jealousy and, in this and it's often a funny and but but I think I think you connect more with her pain, so it's not mm-hmm. quite as just a, it's not as jokey a one liner as it. And I think we found a lot of that. So it it I think it's probably as it's just shifted. It's as it's funny, shifted. but in different it's places. More behavioral, I uh-huh. think, too. Situational uh-huh. than it is just about you know, because I think that was part of the time that he fell out of favor. Was people were trying to replicate the experience of the originals and they weren't they, you know i think neil simon's going through this frankly uh-huh. is that is that you can't you can't it, it's going to take time for his plays to be rediscovered for what they are because they they aren't what i felt in 84 78 right. or 65 when i saw them and so it's going to take time to for enough distance to look at them and go, oh, he really did capture life with a sense of humor. Uh, uh Is there an equivalent question to be asked about the music, Jim? Is there a way that the song, I mean, obviously our ears are completely different than the ears of his audiences would have been. Um, Well, I, I think what people are discovering is what a fine composer he was and how beautiful his melodies are and that he was as good as any of his peers, Cole Porter, any of them, mm-hmm. um, but not really known for that. Right. Not really known for being a songwriter. Um, people like pretty music. You know? <laughs> Even now. <laughs> Even now. I mean, it's, it's funny, but uh, uh, there's, a, there's a fascinating thing. In, we do Room with a View as the uh-huh. show starts. And I, now we watch for it because it's beautiful. And you see couples the touch arms each other's hand, go around. Uh-huh. And, and then you, you go, know, and the heads get oh, together. And, and then by the end of the first actor, <laughs> they've been through that. And you uh-huh. realize that's his genius. I love it. It's his genius as he pulls you into that, which I think it is sentiment, sentiment, mm-hmm. not sentimentality. It is yes. sentiment. Yeah. Well, if you have time, there's one other thing I would be interested to talk about, which is the hiddenness of his life in two ways. One was that he was essentially a social climber. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if you put it in right, kind of right. bald terms, he, he came from the lower middle classes. Right. Very like, little school. Right. right. Um, and made his way into the cream of the society. And then also he was homosexual at a time when – and it was totally closeted. And in fact, as the world began to change and some artists were coming out, he specifically chose not to, as I understand his biography. And I wonder if either of those – that sense of that he always had kind of a secret or was – presenting himself in a way that somehow was different from what he knew himself to be. <laughs> hmm. No, you, all right, you object. So, Well, I don't, I don't think he did that. I don't think he ever presented himself as any other than who he was. Uh-huh. Just the topic for him was something he didn't want to give anyone the satisfaction of answering. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, well, then, then go to the, the social climbing, as I put it, in a negative way, and I don't mean that, but, he, but in, in a very rigid class structure, he managed to go from kind of the lower middle to the, the top, although on a kind of bohemian side of it. Mm-hmm. Does any of that, in your view, inform, do you see that in his work? Is well, that part? sure. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Uh, that struggle. Mm-hmm. Uh, that class struggle, you know, 
uh, is something he addresses in his work all the time. Um, I wouldn't say it's in private lives. Would well, you it is because is it? it's a, actually it's a weapon. Um, that remark shows a very common voice. He says mm-hmm. to Amanda, he's constantly correcting her in, in, in warning her, you know, you have no sense of glamour. You have no tact there. It, it bubbles that, um, mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, um, artists really, and I, and I consider him a great artist really belong to no class. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. that's right. And so he may be embraced by, and he was, but he was of no class. Yeah. He could certainly function I mean, in the way Truman Capote, I think, is similarly mm-hmm. was, you know, and why. And then when he because he is an artist, he took that and made art of it. Mm-hmm. But I really feel and I, I, I agree with Jim. I think that the subject of, of the of the truth of his of, of his sexuality was boring uh-huh. and made and would so reduce the conversation. He just but there was nothing hidden. If you really look, it's out there everywhere. I mean, that's why Eliot is such a fascinating role for him to write for himself. I mean, Albee, you know, wrote about marriage. Sondheim writes about marriage. Mm-hmm. Near gay, right? I mean, because they, but they are artists who have access and feel and mm-hmm. have and and therefore have you know that that perspective is vital. And yet, you can, but it's written from within. They know, yeah. you know, it's it's so. Well, what we have to assume is that gay couples and heterosexual couples fight the same yes. way. <laughs> well, that, that, I mean, <laughs> truly, we're all human yeah, beings, right. and the, the pain is the same. The dynamic, yeah, is exactly. just the same. It's exactly. partnership is what it's about. Yeah, the and, disappointments and yeah. the little yeah. victories, and yeah. Well, that was a really interesting point you made, Gary, about artists being of no class because the outsiderness is almost mm-hmm. essential to mm-hmm. any artist. And he had that in spades. Well, now we really do have to stop. But I thank you so much <laughs> for your this time and your ideas. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Anne. Mm-hmm. 